In the name of God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Amen. Two tickets, $46. Two hot dogs, two popcorns, two sodas, $27. One autographed baseball, $50. Real conversation with 11-year-old son, priceless. You're probably familiar with this ad template from MasterCard since their nine-year campaign still lingers on in our cultural memory. The format, of course, lists costs that all add up to an incredible, incalculable benefit. The goal, of course, is that we would then feel good about spending more and more, of course, only with our MasterCard. Well, in our gospel passage for today, Jesus turns to the crowds following him, and he warns them that continuing to follow him will cost them everything. First, let's look then at the costs of following Jesus before we look at the incredible, incalculable benefit. This passage in Luke 14 has as its bookends three similar statements of Jesus. One cannot, as he says, or even better, even closer to the original language, one is not able to be Jesus' disciple unless one renounces possessions, as we see in verse 33, family, found there at the beginning in verse 26, and even life itself, also in verse 26. I've changed the order from how they're listed in the passage just because that's an order that makes sense to me personally in my flesh, an order that goes from lowest priority to highest priority, right? Stuff, people, death, or life. Well, Jesus here in Luke 14 is trying to change the order of our priorities. But when he talks about how his disciples will be unable to follow him unless they hate their own fathers and mothers, their spouses and children, their brothers and sisters, we find that Jesus is using extreme language for the sake of illustrating his extreme demand. So don't worry. Jesus is not advocating literal hatred for our families. That would be totally inconsistent with what he says elsewhere. No, essentially Jesus is saying here that his followers must place a higher priority on their relationship with him than anything or anyone else, even the people that we love the most. The love that a disciple has for Jesus must be so great that the best of earthly loves is hatred by comparison. Here, Jesus is calling for a Christian faith from his disciples that is total, a faith that is not marked simply by one hour of worship once a week, a faith that is not marked even by 15 minutes of devotion every morning. Jesus has no room for a discipleship that is merely periodic volunteer work on one's own terms and at one's own convenience, as one commentator notes. No, Jesus does not stake claim on just one or two corners of our lives. Rather, he claims all of our lives, every aspect, every relationship, every moment of every day. This is a heavy cost. When I was just a few years into being a Christian in my teens, 
I felt burdened by this thought of living every aspect of the rest of what I really did hope would be a long life for Jesus Christ. Like every good new Christian, I had eagerly memorized that verse from Galatians. I have been crucified with Christ. I no longer it is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. I knew it by heart then, even if I've forgotten it by heart now. But I lived as though that verse said instead to me, it is my job to keep crucifying myself, my job to buckle down and deny myself any pleasure as a Christian. I thought that God wanted me to take charge of my own spiritual discipline as a way of honoring him, as a way of showing him that I could grow spiritually. And so in response to this life of mine where the joy had been lost, I remembered praying in despair Perhaps it was even a blasphemous prayer. I remembered praying like this. Lord, you only spent a few hours on the cross, but now you want me to die to my selfish desires for the rest of my whole life? My self-righteousness reared its head. I thought it depended on me. And so I turned back in my heart, questioning the decision that I felt that I had had no choice but to make. Well, if your heart is like mine, then you too cry out in response to Luke 14. This is too hard, Jesus. Jesus' words, they kill our sense of can-do spirituality, our sense of our own abilities. His words to that old self of ours that wants to do it ourselves sound strong and harsh, an unyielding law, a commandment that is impossible to obey. But I say to you this morning, and I say to that 14-year-old self of my own, what if, what if Jesus here is actually extending a promise to us, an invitation to freedom? This is a freedom from collecting or possessing more stuff than we need. A freedom from spending all of our time then cleaning and storing and dealing with that stuff. A freedom from being a slave to money. Freedom from being a workaholic. Freedom to allow our income to serve God first and foremost. Freedom from earthly laws and judgments. Freedom, too, from the accusation of those who major in minors. Freedom from conforming to the laws of this world. Freedom from the tyranny of living up to those images of perfection. Those images that we see in catalogs and the magazines that interest us whether it's parenting, Southern Living, LLB, glamour, freedom from the people around us also, those images of others that we try to keep up with, freedom from demands of family life even that are not in line with God's priorities to you and God's priorities for you. It could look like this. No, mother, I'm not going to marry the man from the country club who doesn't know Jesus. No, Father, I'm not going to get the high-paying job that will drain my soul. No, my darling child, as much as I love you, I am not going to allow you to be the center of my universe. God desires freedom from us, freedom from lesser loves that would distract us from serving him. And in inviting us to freedom from the tyranny of this world, Jesus invites us to a totally new reality, 
Jesus paints a picture of a completely different identity, an identity that, with different priorities, an identity that is not characterized by any kind of personal achievement or performance. Jesus' words that we hear almost every Sunday in Matthew 28 speak to us here, inviting us not to labor on in our own strength, but to come to him. Come unto me, all ye that travail and are heavy laden, and I will refresh you. For my yoke is easy and my burden light. In Christ, too, we are told by Paul in 2 Corinthians 5.17 that we are new creatures, part of God's new creation, his new people of God now formed through faith. There is something here. This is something that God gives to us. He gives it to us while we are still sinners. This is a new world, a new identity, a new person, a new set of priorities that even so linger on simultaneously alongside that old world and that old sinful self. So then, what if the cost of discipleship is not just a law that condemns the old me, but also a promise that frees us? What freedom is one of those priceless benefits of following Jesus? What, too, if the responsibility of our discipleship, our spiritual discipline, rests on Jesus' shoulders and not on ours? In the midst of many renunciations in Luke 14, as we've heard of our possessions, of our closest human relationships, even of our own life itself, one comparison stands out. Jesus likens the life of discipleship to bearing one's own cross, just like Jesus. Some of you may have been to the Holy Land. I certainly hope that one day I will get to go. And if I do get to go, one of the must-dos on my Holy Land Jerusalem bucket list is to walk the Via Dolorosa, or the Way of Sorrows, which is considered by some to be the route that Jesus walked from the temple to Golgotha as he carried his cross. I cannot imagine the excruciating pain and suffering that Jesus experienced on that, his last walk. Well, here in Luke's gospel, this Via Dolorosa begins surprisingly early. Jesus and his disciples begin on the road to Jerusalem as early as chapter 9, verse 51, where Luke writes that Jesus set his face to Jerusalem, knowing that rejection, suffering, and death await him there. Jesus faces it head on, persevering along the way, in his last journey. But his followers are mistaken. They seem to think that there will be great victory and the coming of a triumphant kingdom when they enter Jerusalem. Even his closest disciples are clueless. Again and again, the disciples mistakenly think that the kingdom is all sunshine and roses and triumphant victory over their Roman oppressors. But before heading out and along the way, Jesus predicts his own death three different times. We see the disciples puzzled. They cannot make sense of what it means. So in the midst of this long journey to Jerusalem in Luke, where Jesus is trying to wake up his disciples to reality, we find many of the sayings about the cost of discipleship. Whoever would save his life will lose it. Whoever loses his life for my sake will save it. No one who puts his hand to the plow and looks back is fit for the kingdom of God. Again and again, 
Jesus tries to prepare his disciples for the reality of suffering that will be unavoidable, even while he was simultaneously persevering, walking steadfastly straight towards his own costly sacrifice. Like Jesus' Via Dolorosa, our own Via Dolorosa in this life is filled with suffering and it ends in death. But bearing our own cross and coming after Jesus is not something to despair over. It's not something we can inflict on ourselves, you see. We might be able to assess our priorities and see where our sin has wrongly ordered our loves. But we cannot hold our breaths and commit the suicide of the flesh. This death of our sinful selves is something that life imposes on us, whether we like it or not. This death of self is something that God does throughout our life's most difficult situations, especially and most saliently, I would say, through those circumstances that we might most wish would change. So today, where in your life is your heart struggling and chafing against a situation out of your control? Is it possible in this place that God is refining you, humbling your pride, causing you to rely more upon him as his disciple? Sometimes life crushes the things that we value most, and these losses are excruciating, but they also are meant to be life-giving in Christ because they reorient our identity upon the most important thing, upon the most important person with a capital P. Bearing one's own cross and being crucified with Christ are not images then that are meant to drum up a supreme amount of effort within us so that we are the ones who overcome our flesh victoriously, nor are they meant to plunge us into the depths of despair. No, instead, bearing our crosses amounts to letting go, acquiescing, giving up our pride, and even giving up those identity-defining characteristics. This is not our work. This is God's work in us. And this journey, this Via Dolorosa, is a journey where we follow in Jesus' work on our behalf, almost as though we were walking right behind him, literally, with our eyes fixed upon his very real Via Dolorosa, his amazing display of love on our behalf. And so when we look soberly at this cost of discipleship, whether we are counting the cost on the front end or lamenting the cost in the middle of the journey, remembering the benefit, that priceless benefit of God's lavish gift of love and the gift of his own self frees us from the hard reality of Jesus' words. Yes, we spend and spend and spend and are spent, but God's gift in Jesus Christ is priceless. In him, we find what we can find nowhere else, that freedom from condemnation, life itself. So in the words of that famous evangelical martyr, Jim Elliot, we say, He is no fool who gives what he cannot keep to gain what he cannot lose. It is worth spending everything else to follow the one who has spent it all to redeem us. Amen.